speak today in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist who escaped from slavery to become one of the greatest orators in American history, tells the story in his autobiography of the Baltimore family who owned him. In particular, he writes about Mrs. Sophia Old. He wrote, My new mistress proved to be a woman of the kindest heart. But alas, this kind heart had but a short time to remain such. The fatal poison of irresponsible power was already in her hands. Douglas reports that when Sophia's husband finds out that she has treated the slaves well, as well as you can treat someone that you own, uh, he had even begun to teach Douglas uh, to read. Excuse me, Sophia had begun to teach Douglas to read, and her husband forbade it. And as as she begins to treat Douglas as less than human, he witnesses Sophia's descent into the demonic. He writes, That cheerful eye, under the influence of slavery, soon became red with rage. That voice, made all of sweet accord, changed to one of harsh and horrid discord, And that angelic face gave place to that of a demon. I'll tell you what, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. Today, we've got my favorite passage in all of Scripture, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And there are three reasons this is my favorite passage. One, this parable points to my social ethic in a nutshell, a vision of what the church should be to the world. Two, It speaks to the side of me that strives for perfection, which I know is an unattainable ideal, but it's an ideal that I respond to nonetheless. Are there any other perfectionists in the house? Oh, that's more than I was expecting. Awesome. (laughs) The third reason that this is my favorite parable, and it took me a while to realize this, uh, is because what seems so clear in Matthew because of his matter-of-fact presentation of opposing dualities, right? You've got sheep and you've got goats. You've got left and you've got right. You've got unrighteous and you've got the righteous. But it's not actually clear at all. There's something new to see every time we come to the sacred text of our tradition, particularly in the harder sayings. And I have come back to this text over the years and I have found something new every time. So this is my favorite passage in all of scripture, even though it has this incredibly scary side to it, this specter of everlasting fire and judgment. It is incredibly easy to read this passage and miss the gospel. There is good news, but Matthew means to jolt us, and that might mean some spiritual whiplash as he confronts us with judgment, but he does not leave us there. Matthew does not condemn us. If you were to search for a phrase that defines the essence of the Gospel of Matthew, the phrase righteous perfection would do the trick. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, Be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
And God is not only perfect, God is considered righteous. And we see in our gospel passage that righteous and unrighteous are words that are used to distinguish the sheep from the goats. Now, I came from a religious background that always seemed to define themselves by what they were not rather than by what they were. So I had a clear sense that we were not Catholic because Catholics believe that doing things instead of faith would mean the difference between heaven and hell. At least that's how my preteen understanding of my faith worked. It's a caricature of what was probably the teaching I was getting. And I didn't totally buy it because that would mean that my grandma was going to hell and that never sat right with me. But in order to avoid any hint of works righteousness, it turned out that judgments about going to heaven and hell in my old church depended on the way one thought. To stray from what the group thought and taught meant that one's salvation, one's righteousness, could be called into question. Well, I left that world because I couldn't keep thinking in the ways that I grew up thinking, and in fact, I left Christianity. But I eventually came back. And when I did, I started looking for what salvation and righteousness meant to me. I needed to reframe the language I grew up with to make Christianity make sense to me in a more holistic way. And it was this passage that spoke to me. We talk about it in our baptismal covenant when we say, will you respect the dignity of all and seek Christ in all others? It looked to me like a clear teaching And it seemed to be the needed expansion to the theology in which I was raised. And it confirmed my growing sense of what it meant to be faithful. I came to think that what we believe means nothing if it means we do nothing for those beyond ourselves. And if it means we do nothing for those on the margins. And this passage seemed to make it clear that we are to respond to God's call with actions that confirm the best of our faith. Now, at that point, I thought I had it figured out. I thought I could tell the sheep from the goats. I thought I was a sheep. But then I thought maybe I was a goat. Do I do enough? Am I righteous enough? Why didn't Matthew provide a better checklist? A set number of people I'm supposed to feed and clothe and care for. That way I can know when I do my part and then I know when I'm done. If one is goal-oriented, this passage fails. It gives no measurable standard. Well, that brings up a lot of uncertainty, and that typically hides behind shame and guilt, and that's not of God. So I return to this passage again, and I realize that in it, neither the sheep nor the goats knew how they ended up where they did. Oh, Another sense of dread came over me. I thought I had traded an impossible faith of believing things that I could not in good conscience believe for an ethical ideal too far to reach. There was no certainty that I would ever do enough. And it took me a while to realize that there was something else that needed to change. I spent so long considering how I could make myself worthy of God, it didn't occur to me to really take God at God's word about the possibilities of love. As Episcopal priest and author Robert Capon wrote, a number of us spend our lives invoking upon ourselves imagined necessities, creating God in the image of our fears. 
The idea that we can be loved so freely is so difficult to believe. Isn't there some work we have to do to earn our salvation? Surely it's not so freely given. And so many of us are set up to take a gospel passage like this and read into it an ethical perfectionism. A perfectionism that is all too easily corrupted by a fraught works righteousness and a new type of judgmentalism because it's so easy to make the move from judging people based on what they believe or don't believe, but then you move to judging what they do or do not do. I return to the text yet again, and I notice that the righteous were not feeding, clothing, or visiting out of fear of hell. Remember, when the time comes, they don't even know why they're sorted as they are. A bunch of sheep are going to inherit the kingdom. And they not only didn't know that they were doing good works for God, they also never even knew they were faithful to him. So what do we do with this? If we aren't getting a checklist, what good is the story for us? I've already mentioned that the Gospel of Matthew lends itself to ethical perfectionism, where Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But what if we were to take that statement as a promise of what is possible in a relationship to God instead of a command from a disapproving God looking to measure and judge us by what we can do on our own? What if we were to move from interpreting this passage as though it's a command to perfectionism and instead look at our actions as being a grateful response to God. Such a view is closer to what we read in these righteous, sheepy people. They helped people because that's who they were. They did it because it was right. And it is a mark of moral and spiritual maturity to do what is right because it is right not because we're afraid of punishment or looking for a reward. And getting to that point is an ongoing process that we participate in. And there's some relief in knowing that God calls us to follow him, to be lured to God with love and not with a flinching fear. So what this passage offers is a way to learn and contemplate the disposition of divine love on the terms of its own glory and beauty, not just what it can do for us. And it's an expression of divine love mirrored on God's concern for those who find themselves on the margins throughout the Bible. In no less than 300 verses, we run into God's concern for those whose social position leaves them in need of care. But this passage from Matthew also helps us consider the depth of God's love and Jesus' identification with humanity. Today, we recognize the king who tells us that he has actually been with us the whole time. Christ the king is present in those on the margins among his people. The righteous and the unrighteous do not see Christ in the story, yet Matthew records that Jesus is telling us right where to find him. Behind the eyes of all who stand before us, we can catch glimpses of the divine. God is with us. And we see that image of God, that image that God created, the image shared by Christ when he walked the earth as God incarnate, the image which the Holy Spirit enlivens daily, that spark of the divine, that image of God present, present, 
and those who stand or sit before us hungry or thirsty or ill-clothed or sick or imprisoned. In doing so, the righteous follow the example of Christ who came to serve the least and the lost, not to be served by those who are already downtrodden. Which brings us back to Frederick Douglass and his experience as Sophia Auld. I think Douglass's description of Auld was an illustration of what happens when we lose the glimpse of the divine in other people. The process of dehumanizing others will ultimately also be a process of eroding the image of God that they bear. And when we lose sight of the image of God in all who stand before us, something in us also diminishes. For whatever reason, when we end up choosing to exercise our capacity for power and superiority over love and kindness and compassion, we lose our sensitivity to Jesus Christ's own presence as the one who fills all in all, both in ourselves and in everyone we meet. We lose our bearings that are guiding us to the kingdom of God, to which we swear an allegiance, and instead we conform to our earthly counterfeit kingdoms. Sophia Auld at first allowed a kindness that would have recognized an inkling of an inherent dignity within Frederick Douglass, but she instead went further in conforming to a societal norm that aimed to feed a narrative of black inferiority. And that's just one counterfeit kingdom that has refused to die. In the mess of everything in this world, destructive to the creatures and the projects of God, Christ is present in and through us, but our desire for power and control, especially power over others, can override our discernment of Christ and those around us, and we ought to pay some heed to that. And here's how. Individually, the best questions to ask when confronted with the parable of the sheep and the goats are these. Between the last time you read this passage or heard it and now, did we see Christ more often than we have before? Between then and now, did I explicitly deny Christ in others, and why did I do that? I should mention that there's also a truly unhelpful question. Am I bound for hell? Jesus, through the Gospel of Matthew, does not give us anywhere near enough information to even approach that question. And frankly, trying to figure out such a thing is a waste of time way above our pay grade. But we are given some things we can trust. We are not in this alone. God does not leave us to our own devices only to pull the rug out from under us. God is present in us and with us to help us see the sparks of the divine we may otherwise miss. We are all God's own, and God loves us. Let us love God back, and let us love our neighbor too. Amen.